You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our sermon this morning, which will be from the prophecies of Amos, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles first to Leviticus chapter 26. You'll see the title there that the NIV editors have put in is Reward for Obedience. A lot of people think that Leviticus is a book full of dry and dusty words, but as we read through these verses, we'll see that that is not the case at all. Leviticus 26, we'll read the verses 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves, and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees of the field their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove savage beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favor, and make you fruitful, and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move out, move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God. And you will be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. Now if you would turn to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 15. We'll read the verses 1 through 21. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? 
No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are, that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest time and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And then our text this morning is from Amos chapter 9, a portion of which was just quoted in the reading from Acts by James. Amos chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places and restore its ruins and build it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, before we came to BC, we had been warned that it was going to rain a lot during the month of November. We weren't told, however, that it was going to rain all of November. It was a dark and dreary month. It was a lot like the book of Amos, a dark and dreary book. Like the endless clouds that brought rain to southern BC for what seemed like 30 days straight, so the endless clouds of judgment came, bringing God's justice to bear on the people of Israel. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Amos was relentless in bringing the justice of God to bear on the wicked people of Israel. But then, just like happened this past week when those endless clouds ceased, and suddenly the sun was shining brighter, and it, it seemed like it was more bright and more beautiful than it had ever been before. So in our text this morning, the clouds of judgment break. And God promises a restoration that is more gloriously bright and beautiful than what we had imagined before and indeed 
what we could ever imagine. And so I preach the Word of God to you this morning under this theme. After seemingly endless clouds of judgment against His complacent people, the Lord promises a glorious restoration through Jesus Christ. After the seemingly endless clouds of judgment against His complacent people, the Lord promises a glorious, a bright and beautiful restoration through Jesus Christ. We'll see, working through our text first, the purpose of this restoration, that is to bring the gospel to all nations. Second, we'll see the result of this restoration of unheard of blessings and prosperity. And third, we'll see the assurance of this restoration, that it's promised by the Lord our God. It's given to us in His Word. So first then, the purpose of this restoration, that the gospel would go to all nations. Well, as we said in this text, the Lord gives us an incredible view of what he has in store for his people. After so many warnings and rebukes and guarantees of judgment, we're really left to wonder, how is this possible? Didn't these wicked people deserve the Lord's judgment? What's with this sudden change in tone? Don't these people deserve to be cut off for good? The opposite of what it says in verse 8. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on this sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. How is it possible that the house of Jacob will survive this wickedness? Well, It all hinges on the restoration of David's tent. That's in verse 11. The restoration of David's tent. It all hinges on a tent? What is this talking about? What is David's fallen tent? Well, in order to understand what Amos is talking about, we need to go back in our mind to 2 Samuel 7, a very famous, and rightly so, chapter of the Bible, and to the great promise that the Lord had given to David in that chapter. Do you remember what happened there? David was planning in his mind to build a temple for the Lord, and so he said, Lord, I'm going to build a house for you. But then God, in turn, said, No, you're not going to build a house with me. Your son will do that. But I will build a house for you. Much greater than any house you could build for me, a house that is going to remain forever, for everlasting. He promised that the royal line of David would continue and would never cease, that his son would always sit on the throne. Well, that was God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. But yet here we are only a few generations later, not exactly forever, and things are already a mess. David's own son was unfaithful to the Lord. The kingdom was divided. And at this time, both kingdoms that stem from David's line are a big mess. Well, that's not how the Israelites would have seen it, of course. Jeroboam's time was a time of great prosperity and wealth. They would have said, Amos, what do you mean fall intent? This is the time when The rich are living in great castles. This 
This is a time of abundance and prosperity. The house of David has never looked better. But Amos declares that no, that's not true at all. The house is not even a house, never mind a palace or a mansion. It's a tent, and it's a fallen one at that. The word we get is a picture of a dilapidated temporary structure that's just barely hanging on and indeed is about to fall. We hear the resonance of that word fall. It hasn't happened yet, but Amos has prophesied it. That the people of Israel will fall. That the house of David will fall and they'll go into exile. And so the house of David is a mess. It's declined to the state of a dilapidated tent and it's about to fall in a big way in the exile of the people of God from their land. But God says, I am going to restore that broken down tent of David. I'm going to repair its broken places. I'm going to restore its ruins and build it up as it used to be and indeed better than it ever was. He's saying, I'm going to be faithful to my promise to David, and I will restore that tent into a beautiful house. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about none other than the great son of David, Jesus Christ. The one who came 2,009 years ago into this world in a most humble way but whose life and death and resurrection and ascension has restored the glory of David's house. He came to restore the house of David and, as Amos tells us here, he came to do more as well. He came to bring restoration to the whole world, to all the nations of the world. You see, the final purpose of the restoration of David's house was not just that David's house would be rebuilt, but that through David's house, through the Messiah, through the great son of David, that the gospel will be preached to all nations. That is, as we read in our text, that the remnant of Edom would be possessed and all the nations that bear God's name. Well, what does this mean? That all the nations... That the remnant of Edom is going to be possessed. Well, it means that God is going to do what Israel had failed to do. It means that just as Israel had failed in her calling to be kings and priests of God to the world around them and to bring the standards of God's justice to bear on the lives of the nations, they instead became like those nations. They didn't carry out God's purpose. But God is saying that he's going to set things straight that he's going to restore David's line so that his purposes can be achieved. And his purpose is to possess the remnant of Edom. That word possess has the the connotation of both warfare and inheritance. Just think of when the Israelites possessed the land of Canaan. They had to conquer it by warfare, and they also received that land as an inheritance. Well, through Christ, Israel is going to drive out the enemies of God. That's what Edom stands in for here. Edom was constantly at enmity with God's people. Edom was always fighting with them. And so when Amos brings up Edom, he's bringing up the enemies of God. That's what he means to point out by bringing up that nation that was constantly fighting against God's people. 
But Israel is going to drive them out. And they're going to inherit them as their own possession. God will send salvation to all the nations. That's how he's going to conquer them. And he's going to restore them to himself. He's going to restore his relationship with them. He's going to call those people who have become estranged from him back to him. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you remember chapters 1 and 2? And those judgments against the nations. How we saw that all the nations have a basis for a relationship with God. That they were living in rebellion against Him and they would be punished for that. But that's not how God wanted it to be. He would rather that His name is worshipped in all the earth. That His glory is upheld and that His honor is reflected. He made it clear that Man was created in his own image, but yet man lives in rebellion. Or how about chapter 6, thinking about the purpose of Israel, that the big problem with the wealth and prosperity of the Israelites isn't that they had wealth and prosperity, but it was that they neglected their calling, their calling to carry out God's purposes and plans in the world, to be heralds of the salvation of Christ, to, to tell the nations of his plan for renewed world and eternal life of peace and blessings with himself. So now, at the climax of the book, after chastising God's people for their failure to carry out what they were supposed to do, God says, fine, I will do it. I will accomplish my plan. I will accomplish my purpose. I will restore David's fallen tent. I will send the Messiah. I'll send my own son, Jesus Christ. And he'll set my justice on track. And he will accomplish my plan and purpose. Well, how is he going to do this? He's going to do it through the church. He does it through the church. By the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 15, we have that account of Paul and Barnabas meeting with the leadership in Jerusalem to discuss discuss the issue of the Gentiles. You see, after Christ had ascended, he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. And that led to the scattering of the church from Jerusalem to Samaria, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And it also led to huge amounts of conversions of people to Christianity, to serving Christ as their Lord. Many people were convicted by the preaching of the apostles and the evangelists, and they believed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, essentially, the the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his giving of the Spirit led to all the, to the gospel going out to all nations. That's why James, when he hears this news, he's reminded of Amos chapter 9. Because that's precisely what Amos is talking about. That through the, when the Lord restores David's fallen tent, that the gospel is going to go out to all nations. And God's people are going to make them an inheritance. And they are going to return to the Lord. Now you may have noticed that the wording that is used, that James uses, is a little different than what Amos used. That's simply because James is using the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. But the meaning is essentially the same. It was prophesied that Christ's coming 
was going to cause the plan and purpose of God to spread the gospel to the nations, to every tribe, tongue, and people. And that is what is happening now. And that's what Christ is continuing to do through his church, by the power of his spirit, even today. That's what's happening. That's our calling in this New Testament age as well, and the time that we look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. That he's setting apart a people for himself. That he's using the church to bring his word to every tribe and tongue and nation. He has restored the tent of David so that the house of Jesus Christ, the church, would possess this world, would preach the gospel to all who are called by his name, to every person who is created in the image of God. That is our calling today, brothers and sisters. That's the calling that we carry out by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we carry out this calling with a great result in mind. We know that one day we are going to see such blessings as a result of this work that we can't even imagine. Indeed, the incredible realities of what God is doing in Jesus Christ doesn't end in the greater praise of his glory when former enemies of his return and come back to him and actually become worshipers of him. But the effect of this gospel going out to all nations has an effect on the whole world. In short, what we are looking forward to as a result of our gospel efforts is prosperity and blessing that has never been seen before. Let's take a look at what our text says about this blessing. First, verse 13, it talks about the reaper and the plowman. The reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. Basically, the picture is that it's going to be a time of great prosperity. It's going to be like harvest and seeding time all year round. Harvest is a time of celebration. When the year's worth of work finally comes to fruition and you reap the benefits of your work. And the time of sowing is a time of of renewal, of great anticipation, of looking forward to even more. Well, Amos says that those two things are going to be recurring in constant cycles. It's It's always going to be a time of celebration. And it's always going to be a time of looking forward to more. No sooner is the reaper reaping the harvest and the sower is going out right behind him for the next crop. There's going to be no up and down of the agricultural year. No drought, no waiting to finally see the effects of your work. It's going to be all up. It's going to be all good. It's going to be all blessings all the time. The other picture he gives, the next one, is that new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. While this new wine, and sometimes it's called sweet wine, was what was used at weddings and other times uh, of joy for celebration. Sweet wine was for parties, for celebration and joy. It's, it's, It's like champagne today. And so the point isn't really that there's actually going to be wine flowing down from the mountains or in streams or anything, but the focus is on the amount of joy and celebration. There's going to be so much joy that you're going to need that much wine in order to celebrate it because of 
the goodness and the blessings of the Lord. And the next picture we get is that the people are going to drink their own wine and that they're going to eat their own fruit from the gardens that they have planted. You may remember that the Lord had told the wicked people of Israel that they wouldn't drink any of the wine they stole and they wouldn't live in the houses that they had stolen either. And they wouldn't eat from the gardens they had planted. But here the Lord says when he restores his people, they're going to enjoy these things as well. They're going to live in peace and prosperity and enjoy the fruits of their labors forever. When is this going to happen? Well, this is what we're looking forward to even now in the time of the Advent, as we look forward to the return of Christ, when he will come in judgment, indeed, but when he will also come with great blessings and prosperity for his people. This is what we see in the new heavens and the new earth, bounty and blessing and plenty like we could never imagine. And along with this, of course, there's going to be no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, no more more sorrow. It's going to be all celebration, all the time. But brothers and sisters, it's not like this only remains a future thing. Not at all. Because this has already begun for us. The days are coming, says Amos. The days are coming. And so, well, when did they start? Well, they started when the Lord Jesus Christ came the first time. They started on Christmas. How can I say that these these blessings and prosperity are already being realized by the people of God? Especially because, as you know, we still experience so much pain, so much sickness, sadness, death, disappointment. And we don't experience the kind of blessing and prosperity that Amos is talking about. So how can we say that this is a present reality for God's people? Well, it's because it all centers on Jesus Christ. That's why. These days that Amos talks about was begun by Jesus Christ. All the blessings that Amos is talking about comes as a result of the restoration of David's tent It all centers on the Messiah, on Jesus Christ coming into the world. He is the beginning and the catalyst of these incredible blessings. In order to understand this, we'll look at the allusions that Amos is making here in this text. The first allusion is to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, all this talk about fruitful gardens and prosperity and harvest and reaping and joy and celebration all the time. Amos must have had the Garden of Eden in mind. You see, Eden was a place of great prosperity and blessing, but it was never realized because of sin. And so instead of reaping that abundance in the garden, the land was cursed, and Adam and Eve fell. And instead of abundance and prosperity, they had a life of limited productivity, of pain, of hardship, and of timely labor in order to make the land fruitful, because the land was cursed. 
The second allusion in our text is to what we read about in Leviticus 26, to the blessings of covenant obedience. Remember what those words were. They were incredible, almost impossible to believe. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops, and the trees will yield their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and your grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live safely in the land. But Israel had never tasted these promises because they were constantly living in disobedience. Instead of receiving those covenant blessings, they received the covenant curse. And so there were the blessings promised in the Garden of Eden and the blessings promised for covenant obedience, but they were never realized by God's people because of their disobedience. And so they were cursed. So what's the point of all this? Well, the point is that through the restored tent of David, through Jesus Christ, God has removed this curse. He's taken it away. Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ has redeemed us by the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Amos is speaking to people living under the curse, both because of their original sins and their actual sins, because of who they are as the children of Adam, fallen, disobedient, corrupt, and because of what they've done. They've rebelled against God. But Amos is saying that he's going to send one who is going to remove that curse by who he is and by what he will do. Jesus Christ, fully God, and fully man will come and bear the curse on himself, and so he'll remove it from God's people. And the result will be blessings like we have never seen before. What a message. What a message this would have been for the people of God living in the time of Amos. Can you imagine the effects of these words of, This beautiful picture of God's blessing on the hearts of those faithful ones in Israel who who saw the sin and corruption all around them and they were terribly saddened. For those on whom the sin of their brothers and sisters weighed so heavily, they're promised a glorious restoration. Don't give up hope. God has not given up on you and He will restore David's fallen tent. And think of that same message on those who later went into exile, for whom those words of Amos became a reality. It would have seemed hopeless as they were removed from the promised land, but yet they could live in hope because God had promised that he would restore them, that he would come back, and he would give to them a glory that they had never seen before. And brothers and sisters, what a message to us as we await the return of Jesus Christ, but we still bear under the burdens of our sinful existence, that God has already acted to begin this new and wonderful age, and He's now working to build His church and to send out His gospel to all nations, to possess them, every tribe, tongue, and nation, and so bring about His glorious and complete redemption, which will be finished in the great glorification of Jesus Christ, 
and the giving of all the blessings that we have in Him. How amazing. What a message for those who struggle under the weight of sin. And conversely, what a message to the self-indulgent and sinful people in Israel. They thought they had so much. They thought they had everything they needed in this world. You think you have so much now? You have nothing. Compared to your so-called prosperity, you have nothing. Because God has in store the kind of blessings and prosperity that you could never imagine. You're building your little sandcastles on the playground here when God has a great and beautiful mansion just waiting for all those who repent and believe in Him. If only they would have realized that. And so then, what a message do we have for our world There's so much more than this paltry, earthbound existence. There's so much more than what the eye can see, what the wallet can buy, what the mind can conceive. The world is under a curse. But for those who claim allegiance to the Lamb of God, who gave up His life, there is now no more curse. There's salvation. And there's a glorious, beautiful, abundant future in store. What an amazing, incomprehensible message. But it's one that we bring with absolute certainty. With absolute certainty. Because it's founded in God Himself. These promises that God gives are incredible. Perhaps even a little unbelievable for us. But as if anticipating our doubts, God continues to speak through his prophet Amos. He says, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted. Just like Israel is going to plant their gardens and eat the fruit of it, God is going to plant Israel and they're never going to be uprooted. They're always going to live in safely, in safety. Never, never. Can you comprehend that? Never. These are the people who, for whom exile was looming and later generations that would read it for whom exile was a reality. For them, the, the promises of God's blessings would have been hard to believe. But God says, you will never be uprooted again. Never. And then he seals it. Says the Lord your God. Your God. The God of you. The God who has called you. The Lord. Yahweh. The God who makes His covenant with you. He has said so. He said it. He promised it. He spoke it. The God who is and who was and who is to come and who never changes has promised it. Thus says Him. Wow. What a promise. But how can He be so sure? What basis do we have for believing this? Are we not sinful people like the Israelites? What if we don't obey Him properly? What if we neglect Him? What if we're unfaithful to Him? Well, the answer is because it's not on us. It's all on Jesus Christ, His Son. The promise is not sure because we are sure. The promise is sure because He is sure. 
because of what He's done. He's removed the curse from us because He's because of what He's doing. Because He's continuing to call us. He's continuing to pour out His Spirit on the church. Because He's continuing to gather all nations to Himself. And because of what He will do. Because He is going to come back a second time. And He's going to finish the job. And then it's all going to be complete. The certainty we have already. Because God was faithful to His promise. And because he did restore David's fallen tent. And he set his son on the throne forever. It's all by and through Jesus Christ. Please remember that. Please remember that. When you're haunted by the sinfulness and the darkness of this world. When you you can't see the light of that day. When it's just clouds all the time. When you see the hopelessness of so many, don't try to find a solution in the here and now. Don't be satisfied with the promises that you have here below. Only be satisfied with the promises that you have in Jesus Christ and in His ability to deliver. And when you're haunted by your own limitations... And sometimes the lack of zeal that you have in your own heart. Don't try to be satisfied with the solution that you find in yourself. Don't be satisfied with any kind of solution that you might be able to make up for yourself. Look at Jesus Christ. Look what He has done. Look at His perfect sacrifice. Look at His perfect act of love. Look at His word to you in the Bible. Look at His work in the church. Jesus Christ, the great Son of David, is the only solution to the problems of this world. And He is the only one who is able to deliver these sorts of blessings that we can't even imagine. Only be satisfied with His promises for the future. Set your heart on the blessings and prosperity and abundance that you will one day have in Him. Beloved in Jesus Christ, our Lord, set your hope on Jesus Christ and see in Him the wonderful and the glorious blessings that we have because of Him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.